The following is an encore episode of Catholic Review Radio. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Welcome to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek, Digital Editor for the Archdiocese of Baltimore and the Catholic Review. Gerard Manley Hopkins is recognized as one of the greatest poets of the 19th century. Raised in the Anglican Church in England, he converted to Catholicism and became a Jesuit priest. Today, scholars regard Gerard Manley Hopkins as an intense innovator whose love for God infuses his work. On today's show, we welcome Catherine Randall, Professor Emerita of Medieval and Renaissance French at Fordham University and currently a scholar-in-residence in the Department of Religion at Dartmouth College. Catherine Randall, who holds a doctorate in French literature from the University of Pittsburgh, is the author of 10 books, including her most recent release, A Heart Lost in Wonder, The Life and Faith of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Interviewing Catherine today, we welcome Shailene Beyer, a parishioner of the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Baltimore and a librarian at the central branch of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Shailene, who happens to be my sister-in-law, holds a doctorate in English from Yale University and has loved the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins since she was in the ninth grade. Here's Shailene's interview with Catherine Randall. Catherine Randall, thank you so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. I'm wondering if you remember your own first experience of Gerard Manley Hopkins. What drew you to him and what made you want to write this book? I am delighted to be here. Thank you very much. And I absolutely do remember my first experience. I was, like Gerard himself, a very eccentric youngster. I was very shy and I loved poetry. And I began reading the Romantic poets and then I discovered Gerard Manley Hopkins. And one day, to my mother's horror, I grabbed a black magic marker and all alone in my bedroom, I inscribed the poem, The Windhover in black magic marker on the pretty pink wallpaper my mother had just adorned my room with and she was utterly appalled. And that was the beginning of my fixation with Gerard Manley Hopkins. That's a wonderful story. Um, How did you come to the decision to write this book at this point in your career? That is a combination that is both theological and academic. I was professor of medieval and Renaissance French at Columbia, then at Fordham, where I was privileged to teach with many Jesuits whom I very much admired. And then I finished my career as a professor of religion at Dartmouth. When I went up to Dartmouth, one of the courses I taught was a course in mysticism, and one of the poets on whom I relied was Gerard Manley Hopkins. I had over-the-top enrollments, 200 students on the waiting list, but nobody could figure it out, including me, and I think it was Gerard's. It was Gerard's responsibility. So I decided that I owed him a debt of gratitude, and I should write a book about his life because I had always been fascinated with him, and I didn't really know much about his personality. It was a spiritual decision as well. And if you like, I'll tell you more about that later. Great. Um, Were there any surprises for you as you worked on the book? 
Yes, I was very surprised given my admiration for the Jesuits and the fact that Gerard himself did become a Jesuit having toyed with the possibility of joining the Benedictines or the Franciscans. I was surprised at how the Jesuits were not very happy with Gerard on many occasions and forbade him to publish any of his poetry during his lifetime. And, and I, that I really would not have expected. I was also, because at the beginning of this project, I didn't know that much about Gerard. I was very surprised at how hard he was on himself. Very, very hard on himself, very rigorous. Yeah, I was going to say there's an element of self-censorship also. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in your book, two men stand out in particular as making an extraordinary difference in Gerard Manley Hopkins's life. And those are John Henry Newman and John Scotus. Could you talk just a little about what those two men meant to him? Yes, absolutely. Okay, first comes John Henry Newman during... During Hopkins's Oxford days, the Tractarian movement was in full swing. It had begun about 30, min 30 years prior. This was a conflict between the Church of England as being the representation also of the country of England and a notion that Roman Catholicism was the true and ancient deposit of faith because of papal infallibility, apostolic succession. And so the Oxford undergraduates were very caught up in the fervor of this, as well as Darwinianism. And one of the heroic figures to those who were more high Anglican, those who like Hopkins were more drawn to Roman Catholicism was John Henry Newman, who had already left Oxford but was much admired and venerated and remembered. He, he was a very, very tall kind of, oh, cavernous figure who would stalk around Oxford wearing these long black cassock. It was called the Mark of the Beast by his opponents. He was very charismatic, deemed to be a wonderful preacher. And Hopkins eventually did get in touch with him to ask his advice on whether he should remain in the Anglican faith in which he had been reared or whether as his conscience was increasingly urging him to do, he should acknowledge the Roman Catholic church as the one true church. And, and Newman was wonderful, avuncular, almost another father figure and Jared and his father didn't get along too well. So this was an important guy in his life and did eventually receive Gerard into the, the Roman Catholic church. So he was a super important figure for the day and age and also for Gerard Manley Hopkins. Scotus on the other hand was already long time dead. He was a Franciscan, a medieval theologian, but he was super important to Gerard when he was doing his Jesuit novitiate and studying for his exams. It's a very long and grueling process. And the Jesuits at the time were very much drawn to the theology of Thomas Aquinas. Um, whom I also admire, and we're quite sure what they thought of Dun Scotus, but Gerard one day picked up some of Scotus's works in the library and started reading it. And he felt this permission to take his love for the natural world and meld it together into his theology of the incarnate Christ. It's a long and complicated process how he did that and how Scotus explained that in his writing but it was very, very formative on Gerard's poetry. And it's only shortly after that, that he really began writing what we call his great poems. Um, could you say just a little about what it means for Gerard Manley Hopkins to see his poetry as a sacramental, which I think is something Dun Scotus helped him to arrive at? 
Yes, indeed. Yes. So in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Augustine taught us that a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. And this, for instance, transubstantiation, the real presence in the host, the body of Christ. Is this is something to which Gerard absolutely adhered, would not necessarily have been something that he would have learned in his earlier Anglican upbringing. Um, Scotus, by positing that every creature was a forethought in the mind of the creator, suggested that in and through creation, one could arrive at different processes or different techniques through which to apprehend the divine. So a sacramental, as defined in the Roman Catholic Catechism, is a means that is not itself a sign, but is a medium through which a sign of a invisible reality may be attained. For instance, saying the beads of one's rosary, lighting candles, things like that. Gerard gradually came to believe that his poetry was a medium through which one could be got brought closer to Christ through an insistence on the created order of which Christ was also himself part, fully man and fully God. Thank you. Yeah, in reading your book, I found that very powerful to see how he, Dunscotus, helped him discover permission for his poetry through this, this idea. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little about place. Place had a huge impact on Gerard Minley Hopkins. And in your book, you do a lovely job of describing places such as the beautiful landscapes of Wales, Switzerland, and Hampstead, also gray cities such as Liverpool and Dublin. I was curious about whether you did any traveling as part of your research. You ask wonderful questions. Thank you for that. Uh, place was indeed very important to Gerard. And that is somewhat ironic because when he chose to become a Jesuit, as you know, the Benedictines are an order, the Dominicans are an order, the Franciscans are an order. However, the Jesuits are a society, which means they have no fixed mother house. And so Jesuits are sent out into the world almost as missionaries. And for Gerard, that was very difficult and painful and destabilizing because of the very contextual relationship he had to the surroundings in which he found himself. Thank you for noticing that I, I tried to do a lot with the, the places he inhabited. I wanted my book to be very contextual and detailed, almost, almost, and I don't mean this, I certainly don't mean this in a derogatory sense because it's my own book, but almost in a novelized way. I wanted people to pick it up and feel that they were there. Um, I did, of course, yes. As a former professor of medieval and Renaissance French, you can imagine I did a lot of traveling in France and Switzerland and Germany and Italy. Yes, indeed. However, interestingly, at the time I decided to write this book, I was housebound caring for my husband, Randall, Balm Randall Balmer, the esteemed scholar of American religious history, who had broken his leg. And I was taking care of him so I did not go anywhere as I was writing this book, but I traveled in my mind and spirit and heart. Oh, and that is the way many of us are traveling these yes, days. Right now, yes. <laughs> Maybe we could circle back um, to your comment about what this book meant for you spiritually. Um, could you say a little more about that, Catherine? I think you need a couple years to, <laughs> but you are a brave woman to ask. I, yes, um, I feel, a, a soulful akin, akin affinity, a kinship with Gerard, uh, not only because of his uh, eccentric personality in his youth, 
but also because of his love for the Roman Catholic Church. And I have a, a checkered journey of my own, uh, which most people who read this book will not be aware of. And I'm hoping that I know a few of my friends and um, mentors are listening. I hope some of them won't be horrified when I disclose that I was brought up Protestant. I converted to Roman Catholicism when I was 21. However, <laughs> this is where it gets complicated. I was ordained an Episcopal priest in 2007. Round about the time my husband broke his leg, I began to yearn for the church that I had chosen with my heart, the Roman Catholic Church. I began to feel that although I was serving as a priest in the Episcopal Church, I was no longer comfortable with doing that. I am a believer in the real presence and I didn't feel a lot of meaning of the mind or heart. I began my walk back to the Roman Catholic Church. I was assisted in this by an incomparable and wonderful man I could cry. Uh, thanking Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson, who might just be listening right now, who, <laughs> through God's grace, encouraged me to return to the Catholic Church. And I am now officially a retired Episcopal priest who is a Roman Catholic. I uh, sing in the Cathedral Basilica Choir at Santa Fe. It's my great privilege and honor. And I am so happy, finally now, to be in my true, true church home. And I know that Gerard had a hard time with some of his families and friends. Uh, it was very, very dangerous to be Roman Catholic in England at that time. And he was very brave. If you were Jesuit, you had to convert under, it was covert. And, and he was brave enough to do that. And I felt as I was writing this book, if there are, I hope, passages that moved you spiritually or emotionally, it was probably because I was weeping as I wrote them. This was, my soul was yearning and I did not know how to do it. And through Gerard, I found my way. Thank you for asking. Thank you. That was a beautiful response. Our guest today is Catherine Randall, author of A Heart Lost in Wonder, The Life and Faith of Gerard Manley Hopkins. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. I'm Shailene Beyer, and you're listening to Catholic Review Radio. Archdiocese of Baltimore makes the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org accountability. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. Supreme Knight Patrick Kelly reminded Knights of Columbus State Deputies in a November 5th address that the Fraternal Order's founder, Blessed Michael McGivney, was a man of action. Quote, Our founder was not content to watch and lament the struggles of his parishioners and community. He rose to meet those struggles head-on, decisively and courageously, Kelly said during the semi-annual meeting of state deputies held in Nashville November 5th through 7th. Speaking to leaders from nearly 70 jurisdictions, he encouraged them to grow in faith, expand the Fraternal Order's membership, and advance the mission established by Blessed McGivney. Quote, 
A lot of men, especially young men, are looking for meaning and answers, Kelly said. We offer both, a life of service and a life of meaning. Don't just encourage men to adopt our initiatives, explain to them why our initiatives matter, and how the Knights can help them be the kind of men God is calling them to be. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm Kevin Parks. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Okay, welcome back to Catholic Review Radio. I'm Shailene Beyer, and our guest today is Catherine Randall, author of A Heart Lost in Wonder, The Life and Faith of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Catherine, in your book, Understanding Gerard Manley Hopkins' Religious Experience helps us appreciate his poetry and vice versa. I thought it'd be nice if we could walk through just a little of the poetry to show how that works. Could you tell us a little about The Windover, the poem you loved as a young person, and how understanding Hopkins' religious experience deepens our appreciation of that work? Yes, I'd love to. Um, the great Jesuit theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar in his magisterial five volume, or is it six, um, study the glory of the Lord has a very important section on what we might call theologos, reading words and understanding them in relation to one's religious experience. And he makes the case, um, Balthasar makes the case that Gerard's poetry cannot be understood unless one enters into his religious experience as well as appreciates the poetry. And I think one of the reasons that Gerard has been so much loved around the world is because of the beauty of his poetry, but many people really don't um, know that much about his religious perspective. So when I was a, a kid, what, maybe 11 years old, and I first read The Windhover, the first lines are, I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, Dappled dawn-drawn falcon in his riding high on the rein of a wimpling wing. And all I heard was the, was the surge of the words and the power and the magic of them, almost like an incantation. And I was, in, I was enraptured by them. It's an ecstatic utterance. So if you are not a person of faith, you can still appreciate it. Hopkins's world was synesthetic. That is, he combined many, many different sorts of sensual experience into his writing. So he heard and he tasted and he, he saw and he felt all at once. And so a reader who is not religious will still love these, this, these difficult poems. But a person who does have a spiritual sensibility will discern that there is a, an intertext. And in this case, the morning's minion, the beautiful hawk soaring over the heavens, set on high, aflame with the light of the dawning sun is Christ. And the cruciform nature of the hawk has been perceived by ancients for centuries and is discerned to be one of the most holy symbols even before Jesus died on the cross. And, and Hopkins is sending Christ soaring over the meadow to survey his domain in the light of life, which he has brought to all of us. And for me, at least, I don't know about anybody else, that is an extraordinarily beautiful thing. And, and Aquinas told us one of the divine names is beauty. All that is beautiful is of God. That's lovely. Uh, maybe we could also glance at another poem that you write about beautifully in the book, Spring and Fall. Um, this is a poem 
dedicated, it says to a young child, and it ends with the line, it is Margaret you mourn for. The child is weeping, grieving in the poem over Golden Grove unleaving. And I liked how you read Hopkins's religious ideas into this poem. Can you say something about that? Thank you. This is another one of his most famous poems. Uh, so many people have used the, the words Golden Grove, again, almost as a, a sort of enchanted utterance. Francine Prose wrote a novel called Golden Grove. And it is taken many times as a poem about nostalgia or regret. And I think Gerard wants to talk more about original sin and the fall from paradise, the leaving the garden. And so as the trees are unleaving, and there is Hopkins' strange and wonderful twist of words, which you'll perceive so much in his poetry, they're not dropping their leaves, they're unleaving. So earthly matter is, is leaving too. And Margaret is entering into a new state. And, and will she leave behind this Edenic place and enter into the world? Or will she continue to be regretting her past? And so it's, it's very much an ambiguous sort of a poem, which you can read with a religious intertext, or you can simply resonate with as a person who has lost innocence. That's lovely. Um, and towards the end of his life, Hopkins wrote a really beautiful poem called That Nature is a Heraclitean Fire and of the Comfort of the Resurrection which is a poem full of despair, but that has a really critical turn in it and ends up in a different place. And I'm just going to read the very end of this poem, which you write about so eloquently in the book. The poem ends, in a flash at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. And this Jack joke, poor potsherd, patch, matchwood, immortal diamond, is Immortal Diamond. I wonder if you could talk a little about that and about what that poem represents in your narrative of Hopkins's life. Yes, Hopkins studied um, Greek poets and philosophers when he was at Oxford. And he understood that the Heraclitian fire is a transmutation almost uh, will calcine a diamond to dust, except for at the end of this poem, we have a mortal diamond. It is a process where all that is within us that is dross and, and not beautiful is taken away and purified as in a refiner's fire. So when he talks at the end of this poem about Jack and Christ, this is his Hopkins's moment of redemptive epiphany after going through a very, very grim four-year period in Dublin, where he was writing poetry that was very, very depressive. His friends were horrified and worried about him psychologically, and they called them the terrible sonnets. Hopkins was overworked. He was despairing. He was away from home. He had felt he had lost his connection with the countryside, and he had entered into a period which the Orthodox call abandoned by God, which is like sin, uh, like despair, a sin. And, and he couldn't understand how he had loved so much this beautiful Christ, and now Christ appeared to have withdrawn from him. And in this poem, Gerard despises himself. He thinks he is a wretch and a worm, and he calls himself 
poor Jack, which is a very, very rich word in the English language. Um, it, it refers to something very small or a shim you could put in between two pieces of wood when they don't fit, um, something that is negligible. And when he says that it's every man, Jack, and Christ is every man, our face is discernible in the face of Christ. In the suffering on the cross, and in the glory of the resurrection, we all have within us the potential for sin and the potential for glory. And what mattered to Gerard was what we did with this life. And he said elsewhere in his poetry, he said, I teller have been given the telling of this sacred story. And so that is how I interpret that poem. It's, it's Gerard's banner of hope shortly before he died and offer of redemption available to all. That's wonderful. Um, what do you hope people will take away from this book? I hope that they will see that in a lot of respects, Gerard Manley Hopkins, although he lived such a long time ago from us, was very much a contemporary spirit. Um, he was a man who cared very much about the environment. In his poem, Binzi Poplar, he wrote about the need to preserve God's creation. During this time of COVID, as you very astutely pointed out, um, we are isolated, we're not traveling. He often traveled in his mind. In fact, I think he would have preferred to do like Pascal said and just stay home in his own room and be content. I'm, I hope that readers who are inclined uh, in a spiritual direction will find inspiration. I hope those readers who might be a little more out there in their um, spiritual sensibilities will realize that there are kindred spirits who perceive God in the world, who perceive God through all their senses. Um, I hope those who are doctrinally um, observant will find a man who was an ardent, devout Roman Catholic, always, always upholding the church, never exalting his own experience over the church, but placing his experience at the service of the church and of his offering of Christ to the world. Catherine Randall, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. For Catholic Review Radio, I'm Shailene Byer. Thank you for listening. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.